So we're picking up in 1 Corinthians. That's where we are studying together here as a church. And our theme is everyday discipleship. So when we, when we teach through different books of the Bible, we like to have a theme. And it's through the theme, we kind of use that as a lens to look at the, the passages that we're going through. So... So that is the lens that we're looking at 1 Corinthians through, everyday discipleship. Now, in our previous uh, teaching, we saw how divisions had occurred in the Corinthian church, and they were divisions that were centered around personalities. And it, but it wasn't the personalities themselves that were promoting these divisions. It was other people within uh, the congregation. Uh, some said, I'm of Paul. Some said, oh, I'm of Apollos. And some said, well, I'm of Peter. And some even said, well, I'm of Jesus. And of course, Paul and Apollos and Peter and obviously Jesus, they, they weren't involved in this, but people were creating these little sort of personality cults and things around their names. And we're, we're kind of just modeling what they had seen in the world. So what we have is the, the world um, culture is creeping into the church. And they're divided over, like I said, these personalities and they're, um, they're also thinking about just cultural acceptance in the sense of uh, what the culture deems as uh, important. And so one of the things that was huge in the Corinthian culture was uh, like philosophical ideas and and how to speak properly. So in those days, there were people who were known as rhetoricians. So their specialty was rhetoric. And what they were known for was their uh, ability to speak. The content didn't even so much matter. It was the way they said it. It was the words they used. And they, they became like celebrities. They would go into a town and they would, uh, you know, going to speak on a certain topic at a certain time and place, and people would come together, and they're like, wow. You know, so they, they had a celebrity position in the culture. So the Corinthians are adopting that. They're, they're trying to bring that kind of stuff into the church. And so that's why Paul, in verse 17, says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he adds this, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So you see, that was their big emphasis, eloquence and um, the wisdom and all of this. They were wanting the leaders of the church to be seen like that because it gave them a sense of pride, gave them a sense of, man, we were really somebody. And so Paul's whole point in the passage that we read together is to show them how that is the exact opposite of the way God views things. It's the exact opposite of the way we as believers should view things and the way we as believers together should conduct ourselves. And so the gospel itself and the, the fact that the Corinthians were participants of it, uh, the gospel shows God's disregard for, for the things people think are important or, or make the priority. So Jesus said this at one point. He said, the things that are highly esteemed among, among people are an abomination to God. So in other words, all the things that make up uh, society that divide people into categories and things like that, 
and put one group of people over the other, make them superior, those kinds of things. Those are things that God finds that detestable. And what we have here is that is the mentality that is creeping into the church. So the world then and the world now tends to think of people in two categories, the somebodies and the nobodies. I mean, that's really it, isn't it? I was talking to a friend earlier after the service uh, who happens to be an attorney, and he was just telling me, um, he's been an attorney for many, many years now, but he was talking about when he first got out of law school and he start, started uh, you know, engaging in the world of uh, practicing law and so forth. And he went to a really, um, his own words were a podunk school, a podunk law school, a law school that had no prestige whatsoever. And so he said, you know, when he went into this, this group of lawyers that had graduated from all of these Ivy League universities and things, he just felt like, man, I can never tell them where I got my law degree from because I will immediately be considered a nobody. Uh, but then he was saying how they would treat the people that worked for them, like the office people and the, the, you know, the secretaries and the janitors, how they just treated them so poorly. And it's, it, as he was saying it to me, I just said, wow, this is a, an illustration of the kind of thing that we're talking about. The somebodies versus the nobodies, that's what's creeping in. The church is a place where these categories should never exist. That's the thing. They, they should never exist in the church. And what the Corinthians are doing is they're creating these kinds of things. So this is the, this is the in-group. Man, if, you, if you're part of this group that follows Apollos, then you're part of the in-group. Oh, the rest of you, you're, you're on the outs. You know, you're, you're not really important. So as far as God's concerned, these categories do not exist. People create these categories, but God uh, does not acknowledge these as existing. Uh, N.T. Wright, I've quoted N.T. Wright on a number of occasions. He is a, um, oh, he writes commentaries on the Bible, among other things. But he put it this way. He said, every human being, man, woman, and child, and even unborn child, bears the image and likeness of God and has neither more nor less dignity because some other people have heard of them, look up to them, or think they are special. That's the way God sees everything. We, have, we all have a dignity, um, built-in dignity, because we're image bearers. We're created in the image of God. And that is as far as it goes, as as far as God is concerned. Now, what Paul is really going to get at here is that unless the Corinthians understand that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. You know what I mean when I say that, right? An upside-down kingdom. In other words, the way things operate in the kingdom of God because of the way God views things, it's usually just like the complete opposite of the way the world is. Jesus, remember that one time where Jesus says to his own disciples who are vying for position, they're you know, fighting like, well, who's really the most important of us all? And Jesus says, you know, uh, this is the way the Gentiles function. The, the Gentiles think of their great ones. They're the ones that have uh, dominion over others and so forth. But what did Jesus say? He said, it shall not be the case among you. But the one who is the greatest among you shall actually be the servant of all. So Jesus just flips it on its head. So that's why I'm saying that we... Uh, that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and unless the Corinthians understand that, they will keep trying to impress the world, trying to be someone in the eyes of the world, and in doing so, they will tear themselves apart and forfeit the power and wisdom of God that their culture so desperately needs. See, this was the issue. And Paul said it. He said, there are these divisions among you, and I pointed out previously how that word, it, it could be translated... Um, there, there are these tears. And so through creating these uh, groups of somebodies and nobodies, 
they're in danger of ripping the body of Christ apart and in doing so, failing to fulfill the mission for which the church came into existence, the mission to reach all people. Now, Paul is going to show them through two things why they should never travel down the path of self-importance. And the two things are, number one, that the gospel itself is intended to humble human pride. You know, really, a proud Christian is like, talk about an oxymoron. I mean, that is like uh, so antithetical to what a Christian is to be. So when you see, uh, you know, a person who is a Christian, maybe it's a Christian leader, and you see a lot of arrogance, you think, wait, how, how did they miss this? Because this is a, a key feature. Jesus himself says about himself, I am gentle and humble in heart. Wow. If Jesus is gentle and humble in heart, who are any one of his servants to think that we are somebody? Now, so the gospel itself is intended to humble human pride. And secondly, the second thing Paul's going to use is the Corinthians themselves. They are living proof that God has no need of human excellence and that he is drawn to humility and weakness. So he's going to bring them back around to remind them of how their very uh, existence as a Christian church contradicts the mentality that, that they've now adopted. So that's how we're going to look at it. And Paul does it by, first of all, defining the message of the cross. So let me read in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the message of the cross, to some, it is foolishness. In a second, you're going to see why. But to others, it is the power of God. But the question is this, what is it? What really is the message of the cross? In other words, what is the cross communicating? Now, when we say the cross in uh, 2021, we do not generally think of the cross the way a first century person would think of it. Because after all, we have 2,000 years of church history. The cross became, uh, in the early centuries of the church, a symbol of the love of God and the victory of Christ and so forth. And, and then, you know, throughout time, it, it identified um, the church in many ways. Uh, crosses were uh, made as symbols. And then at some point, uh, people decided to make crosses even into jewelry and that, that's common today, right? So the offense of the cross, we do not get that today. When we understand the nature of the cross, then we'll understand what the message of the cross was. Now, I'm going to quote to you from a man named Gordon Fee. He said this, and I think this is an excellent description of the message of the cross. He said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, not a single thing that any of us possesses will advantage him or her before the living God. Not brilliance, clout, achievement, money, or prestige. In the cross, God declared that he has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. It is all. Trust him completely or it is nothing. That's the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that there is not a single thing that any one of us could ever bring to God that would give us a basis for acceptance with God. 
It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. It doesn't matter uh, what your background is. It doesn't matter uh, how bright you are. It does, none of those things matter. Those are not the basis for a right relationship with God. He, Paul goes on to say, and he says uh, here in the following sentence, he says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, the foolishness of what was preached in some of uh, the translations, and I know this is true in the New King James for sure, um, the emphasis is on the word um, preached. So it's through uh, the foolishness of preaching that God chose to save those who would be saved. The emphasis there is on the wrong place because it's not the preaching that's the foolish thing, it's the message that is preached. And so here, this is the correct way to understand it, through the foolishness of what was preached. So what was being preached? When, the, when they went out into the world, what were they preaching? What were they saying? Well, we know they were talking about Jesus dying on a cross, right? But, but what did that sound like to the ears of those who heard it? What they were saying was this, a crucified Jew who is also God is the savior of the world. So many contradictions in this statement. So for us, we who, especially us who are believers, we read that and go, well, of course, that's exactly what they were preaching. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem was many for the people who heard it. Now, for a Greek the first problem is we're talking about a Jew as the savior of the world. That right in and of itself is problematic. And then you add this idea of a crucifixion to it. It's like, this is absurd. This is out of the question. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, they weren't averse to the idea that a Jew would save the world, but they were averse to the idea that the Jew was God and that he was crucified. Because in the mind of the Jew, Messiah and crucifixion they cannot be stated in the same sentence. It's a complete contradiction. So, one writer said it this way, death on a cross was regarded in Roman society as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists and could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminals. It was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society except through the use of euphemisms. For Gentiles who might imagine a divine savior figure and for Jews who expected a Messiah anointed with power and majesty, the notion of a crucified Christ, a Messiah on the cross, was an affront and an outrage. So it was an affront and an outrage. That there... Preaching a message like this, I mean, it, it, it became clear that this message either sounded like the most foolish thing that anybody could ever come up with, but for some, they understood it as the, this is the power of God to salvation. Some, some actually got it. Of course, the, the Holy Spirit working to convict them. But that is the message of the cross. So God never intended to impress people with his wisdom or send his servants out to, to impress people with their knowledge and their wisdom and, and things like that. He's, he's doing the exact opposite of that. He's dismissing all of that. And he is bringing... now. One of the things Paul's doing here is he's contrasting God's wisdom with human wisdom. And so this is the contrast. And so listen to what Paul goes on to say. He says, for since, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For, listen to verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Wow. The foolishness of God. Now, uh, Paul is, he's in a sense, he's, he's using their own uh, methods against them. He's, he's using irony here. So when he's talking about the foolishness of God or the weakness of God, of course, you know, some people would see this as highly offensive. How dare Paul say something like that? Um, Paul doesn't think God is foolish. Paul doesn't think God is weak. Uh, but what he's doing is he's just wanting to show them that even if it were foolish and weak, it's still greater than anything that, that humanity could ever produce. So the, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Think of it. Human wisdom has never saved a single person. Human wisdom has never saved a single person, but God's wisdom saves all who believe. Now, human wisdom, we're talking about all the accumulated information, the knowledge, the philosophies, and all of those things down through the ages. Back in the fourth century, Athanasius, who was a theologian in the fourth century, who back in those days, uh, you know, defended the faith and contended against uh, the philosophers of the day and so forth. He wrote about the philosophers and he said something that was very interesting in his day. He said the philosophers um, are all concerned with the right words and things like that. And he said something to the effect that uh, not only did they not even understand what they were talking about, but no one else had any idea what they were talking about. And one of the points that he makes is because it was so esoteric and so out of touch with anything that, you know, sort of boots on the ground life, most people just ignored the philosophers. They just thought that, well, these people, they're, they're kind of in their own world over there. They're never going to do anything to help us. But the wisdom of God through the cross saves all who believe. So all that the philosophers thought they were going to do through their philosophical arguments, they're going to give people a better life, uh, they're going to give them greater insights that are going to help them to you know, be pr more productive or more peaceful or more, you know, whatever the case might be. It never produced anything. But this wisdom of God through the cross literally transformed the lives of millions of people. So the wisdom, uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Human strength never broke a single chain of sin. Human strength has never put to flight even one devil. But Christ through the gospel he has broken the power of sin over the lives of, again, millions upon millions upon millions of people. He's liberated people from uh, the bondage that the, the spirit world, the demons and the devil have held people in. And Paul reminds us of that in Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So, you know, the proof is in the, um, the outcome of the message. So all of this philosophizing and all of this does little to nothing to ever really change anything. The gospel comes with its power and it radically changes, it transforms. It turns people around. It literally makes people into new people. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. But it's so simple. And people, even today, they are offended by it because, well, that, that just sounds too easy. You know, give me something complicated. 
You know, it's so funny because people, I, I've heard both things from people when it comes to the gospel. I've heard people say, um, when, you, when you share the gospel with them, I've heard people say, well, that's, that's way too complicated, man. I just, I just don't get it. You know, how could God save somebody through a person who died on a cross 2,000 years ago? And I've heard other people say, oh, that's way too simplistic. Are you kidding me? It's like, what do you mean? You just believe in Jesus and you're going to get saved and that's going to change your life? Well, that's so simple. So which is it? Is it too complicated or is it too simple? <laughs> it's, it's just a straightforward um, statement of fact. Christ died. This Jewish man who was also God died on a cross to pay for the sins of the world and anyone and everyone who put their hope and their trust in him, they are saved. And that means a new life and a new destiny. Isn't that wonderful? It's so simple. God has made it so simple. So the Corinthians, the problem with the Corinthians again is they're forgetting this simple message and they're trying to complicate it. They're trying to make it because philosophy's big in their culture, they're trying to feel like, well, you know, we're right there with the philosophers. We got our, we've got our own philosophy. It's, and Jesus is our philosopher. And Paul and Peter and Apollos, you know, they're, they're like the disciples of Jesus, like, uh, you know, Plato had disciples. So they're trying to turn this thing into something that it's never intended to be. Because the motivation at the, at the end of it is really, we don't want to be nobodies. We want to be somebody. But now Paul takes them right back for a reality check into who they really are. So the message of the Corinthian believers, that's what we move to next. He's going to remind them that the very people that they are now despising, the very people that they are now looking down on, the very people that they would just as soon not come into the congregation because they're just a bunch of nobodies, Paul is going to remind them that, hey, guess what? That's who you were. And so look what he says. Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in uh, before him. So that's something they forgot. And the world was creeping into the church. The world that said, this is how a person is deemed valuable. This is how a person attains dignity. This is how a person's worth is measured by this standard or that standard or the other standard. But Paul says, you're living proof that God <laughs> does not think that way. Now, I want to read this great quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a, uh, a Victorian preacher in London. And Nobody could say things like Spurgeon did. And he's speaking about this issue here. And let me read you this quote. He says, It is clear to everyone who will observe either scripture or fact that God never did intend to make his gospel fashionable. That the very last thing that was ever in his thoughts was to select the elite of mankind and gather dignity for his truth from the gaudy trappings of rank and station. On the contrary, God has thrown down the gauntlet against all the pride of manhood. He hath dashed mire into the face of all human excellency 
And with the battle axe of his strength, he has dashed the shield of man's glory. Wow. That's what God has done. God, I love the way he says this, though. He, he says, God never intended to make his gospel fashionable. Nor did he ever plan that he would select the elite of mankind and gather dignity for his truth from the gaudy trappings of rank and station. That's never God's intention. See, because God is not impressed with human ideas and accomplishments and those things. None of those things, I mean, you know, if, if we just get a little bit of a grip on who God is, it becomes crystal clear why he's not impressed. You know, all that we have is he's instilled it in us in the first place. Now, of course, most people never think of that, right? Most people never think that they're as smart as they are because God created them with that ability uh, that, and they you know, had an opportunity to get the education that other people didn't. Uh, you know, a lot of people never think about the fact that uh, their beauty is something that is a gift from God or their uh, rank you know, in life or whatever. People don't think in those terms, right? They somehow put, we have this tendency to just sort of put it back on ourselves that, that we are somehow responsible for this. But the whole point is that that is not the case at all. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it today, this kind of stuff uh, has, has gone to an unimaginable level of intensity in our culture. Because we're, we're living in a time when, um, you know, everybody is striving to be Famous, striving to be somebody, to have their voice heard, to, to be recognized. I mean, that's just the culture that we live in. And things like social media have heightened the intensity of that. You know, there's a, a term that has been coined about people. Uh, it's called, they are insta-famous. And what insta-famous is referring to is that on the social media platform Instagram, you have a lot of people following you, or relatively a lot in comparison maybe to somebody else. So, so you have this fame now because of the photographs you take or the people that you get your pictures taken with and you've got enough people to follow you. But everybody's aiming to, to be insta-famous. And we, this world has been created where, uh, you know, through all these social media platforms, YouTube and things like this, you know, there are people now that are famous um, and, they're, and they're like multimillionaires because they sit in front of a camera all day and just blab about something. <laughs> you know, there's a, <laughs> there, there's a game, there's two games, one called Minecraft, the other is called Fortnite. And any of you you know, parents in here that know what those are, or grandparents that know what those are. I mean, these, these are guys that sit in front of a camera and they just have a running commentary on video games and they've become like multimillionaires. And it's like, how did this happen? I mean, this is, and, and you know, every like 12 year old wants to be now like that guy. That's, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a, a gamer on social media platform. But this is the world, and it's, it's just been exacerbated by what's happening in our culture through technology and those things. But I mean, you know, now it's, a, it's a, I mean, the elites are, uh, they've always been influencers in the culture, but now it's like everybody wants to be an elite. But these are not the things that God's people should be preoccupied with. Now, Paul, it is important to just note this, that Paul doesn't say that there are not 
any who are wise or any who um, are influential or any who are of noble birth, he says there are not many. Now, Paul himself, in some ways, was in the category of, you know, he was an educated person. He had a a prominent role in his own culture as a rabbi. Uh, You have uh, a man named Sergius Paulus, who is called an intelligent man. He's a proconsul of Cyprus in Paul's time. Uh, You have a reference here in the New Testament to a man named Erastus, who was the treasurer of the city of Corinth. So even in the scriptures themselves, you will find that there are people of rank, there are people who of wealth and so forth, but they are the minority, not the majority. They are the minority. The majority of believers throughout history have been from the common people, the poor among all nations. And remember, Jesus said, when he was describing his, his mission as a Messiah, he said, I've come to bring good news to the poor. You know, the poor, it's that, it's that group of people that throughout almost all of history have been trampled on, have been disregarded, have been seen as the nobodies in every society. But that's the very people that Jesus said the gospel was going to primarily go to. But again, what's the point? The point is the Corinthians, they, they've forgotten that. And so Paul is, like I said, he's using their own experience to remind them. Hey, listen, those of you that think you're somebody, that's what he'd be saying. Let's remember, let's, get, let's have a reality check here. Let's get back to who you really are. And really, thank God that he didn't do things the way you are thinking now that he probably should have because had he done things that way, you would be excluded because you're not part of the in-group. Now, Karl Marx, some of you know who that is. Um, Karl Marx used the term proletariat to refer to the working class. And he used the term bourgeois to refer to the middle and the upper classes. And he and those who followed and still follow his philosophy, they set themselves up as the champions of the proletariat. Now, this word, the proletariat, is interesting. Uh, The word originally referred to the lowest class in Roman society. So Marx borrows it from... Roman society. The text, the, what, the description that Paul gives of the Corinthians is really a description of the proletariat. And so what is the point? The point is that the proletariat, they are the ones God has chosen. And that Jesus, not Marks or his associates, Jesus is the champion of the common man. Jesus is the savior of the common people. Now, of course, the Marxists always present themselves as the savior of the common man, but they never save the common man. They only become another version of oppressing the common man, and we should recognize that. Jesus, the gospel, this is for everyone. And there, there are no categories with God. Remember, James touches on this. He says, you know, what's going on in your church? Um, a rich man comes in and you say, hey, sit right here in the front row. A poor man comes in and you say, hey, you sit in the back. You know, you, you stay in your seat right there. James says, what is that? You've become judges with evil thoughts. So all the way through, the the scriptures condemn this kind of behavior. And we, as the people of God, individually and collectively as a church, we can never lose sight 
that our mission here is to reach people, all people. Not just particular classes of people. You know, sometimes churches have the idea of, um, like church leadership will say, like, we're going to target a certain group of people. So in our community, uh, we're going to do some research. We're going to find out what the demographics are. We're going to find out, you know, people's age and their income um, bracket they're in and, you know, things they like and whatever. And, and then they decide, well, we're going we're to target this group. These are the kinds of people that we want in our church. That is so contrary to the message of the gospel. Who's God's target audience? Everybody. God, he he wants to reach everybody. And he really has a heart for the poor. He really has a heart for the people who are overlooked by the majority in a society. He loves the field worker. He loves the house cleaners. He loves the bus boys or girls and the dishwashers. He loves the factory workers and the immigrants and those living in poverty and those sitting in jail cells. God loves them. We, even as Christians, sometimes forget that. We overlook that. We, like the Corinthians, sometimes we, we get saved maybe out of that, but then we, we sort of get sophisticated. And then we come up and, you know, here's the crazy thing. God will make you into something. But the problem is we forget that God made us into something. Then we start thinking that we really are something because of just who we are. So we can never forget. If God took a foolish thing and made it wise, and then I start thinking that my wisdom is my own wisdom, then I'm setting myself up for a fall. If God took an influential person and made them a, a, a person of influence, and I start thinking that, well, I'm influential because of who I am, then I'm setting myself up for a fall. And so on and on. This is the thing that we cannot forget. And the church collectively, when the church has forgotten this, when the church has uh, focused its mission or uh, aimed at, we're going to have an upper class church, we're going to have a church of the, the rich and the famous and, and you know, the prestigious and all of that sort of thing, and then neglects the, those who so desperately need the gospel, you know what happens? You know what's happened historically? It creates a vacuum, and then others rush in as alternative saviors. So, you know, you, you could build a case that Marxism, socialism, communism, however you want to label it, it's all related, right? It's piggybacked on the failure of the church in this particular area. The Russian Revolution in 1917, you know what they did? They pointed and they said, man, the church, these, these people, uh, they are uh, in league with the aristocracy. They couldn't care less about the peasants. It's obvious by the way they treat everybody. And Lenin and those guys came along and said, we're going to give you a better thing. But it was like an alternative. Marxism is a false gospel. It's an alternative gospel. It's a human version of certain aspects of the gospel, void of God himself, and obviously void of Christ. But that's what happened in the Russian situation. That's what's happened in South and Central America and in numerous other places, the church institutionally links itself with the aristocracy and oppresses the poor, and this causes the vacuum that causes people to rush in. So what's the solution? Well, the church's solution is 
Let's never lose sight of who it is that God is wanting to touch and reach. And let's remember that it's everybody. And let's never come to a place where we have a uh, stratified situation in the church where we've got the best seats reserved in the front for the wealthiest and the best looking. And, you know, they're the ones that 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 stuff has happened over and over again. And it's rooted in the very things that Paul is addressing here. See, that's the thing. It wasn't just uh, a personality contest that Paul was contending against. He sees that underneath this what looked like a personality contest, uh, contest among church leaders, underneath this, there was an idea that was completely counter to the gospel. And it was the idea again that the world is divided into two, somebodies and nobodies. And we want to be part of the somebodies. God deliver us from that personally. God deliver us from that as a church. God deliver his church from that. And let's remember that Jesus, he's the champion. He's the hero of the common person. He's the one who loves and wants to reach and save and bring into his kingdom. And everybody in that kingdom, like we read at the foot of the cross, it's level ground. It's all level ground. Now, finally, what is the message to the Corinthian believers and to us. And that message is found in verse 30 and 31. And so here he reminds us this. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. We are in Christ Jesus because of God. God chose what did he choose? He chose the foolish to confound the wise. He chose the weak to confound the mighty. And so forth. God, we're in Christ because God chose us to be in Christ. So again, where, where is boasting? What, what am, where do I have place for human pride in this picture, there's no place. I'm in Christ because of God who through Christ has become wisdom for us. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So in other words, everything is God's gift to us. And just like God gave that gift to every one of us, he wants to give it to everyone else out there that will receive the simple message of his love demonstrated through the death and resurrection of his son. And so, final word, therefore, as it is written. Now, when Paul says, as it is written, he's referring back to um, the Old Testament. And here he's referring back to the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 9, I think it's 924, 923, 924. Um, he's, he's alluding to what Jeremiah said there. And read that later today. It's such a, a beautiful passage. But um, there the Lord through Jeremiah is saying to the people at the time, he's saying, do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the rich boast in their riches. Do not let the mighty boast in their strength. But the one who boasts, let them boast in this, that they know me. That's our boast. And that's what Paul says here. As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so all of this stuff 
the somebodies versus the nobodies. This is all just complete contradiction of what the message of the gospel is. So the reality is we're all nobodies that God made somebody because of Jesus. The important thing is that we never forget it. We never forget it. And if we never forget it, whoever we see, we're going to look at them through that lens and think, man, I was a nobody. And look what God did for me. God, you can touch that person. You can reach that person. And you want to show love for that person. You want to consider that that person is someone for whom Christ died. That person is someone that God wants in his family. And so may God help us in our time. Now, these, these kinds of issues, let me just say this in closing. This stuff, you know, history just repeats itself over and over again, right? So the Corinthians, they battled with this and they got things sorted out through Paul's correction. And then for a little further down the road, somebody else is doing the same thing. And all the way through the history of the church, you find these same things resurface over and over and over again. And so here we are, it's a new time, it's a new day, it's not the first century, it's the 21st century, but these truths are as applicable to us and necessary for our understanding as they were for those back then. Let's just always remember, God does not have the categories that we do. And God has a wisdom And that wisdom is ultimately Christ. And that's the wisdom that far surpasses any wisdom the world has to offer. That's the wisdom that we need to live by. That's the wisdom that we need to just continue to immerse ourselves in. And so let's pray together. Lord, we pray for ourselves that you would take these truths and, Lord, apply them to us as needed. Lord, personally, as as we have um, areas and things where maybe these things speak right directly to us, maybe they speak indirectly to us, but in whatever way, Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit would now apply these things to our hearts. And, Lord, we pray that um, individually, but we pray that you would help us also collectively as a congregation. We pray that we would live with the mind of Christ in regard to these things, that we would not fall into the trap of thinking that the world is divided into the somebodies and the nobodies, but Lord, that we would remember you Lord, that you came in obscurity. You came in, from the world's point of view, your birth, your life, your death. It was all, it was all the things that would happen to a nobody. But Lord, we thank you that you, though you were strong, you became weak so that we through your weakness might become strong. Though you were rich, you became poor that we through your poverty might become rich. How we thank you for that. So impress those things upon us today, we pray.